One of the most influential books ever written about communism and its history was One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The book is a devastating description of life in the Gulag, the prison labour camps of the Soviet Union. When it was published in the West, it changed the minds of many people about the true nature of the Soviet regime. Surprisingly, it was also published in the Soviet Union, where it was a sensation. Giles Udi, historian and expert on the Gulag, tells the remarkable story of how this came about. At the end, James Bartholomew asks a follow-up question. This was an in-person and Zoom event of the Museum of Communist Terror, which took place on June 14th, 2022. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918. He never knew his father, who was killed in a hunting accident six months before he was born, which meant that his upbringing was in considerable poverty. Uh, he lived in the southern part of Russia, close to the Caucasus, and um, was supported by his mother, who managed to get an office job. He himself wanted to be a writer, but he realized that there was no way that door was going to open to him, certainly given his social circumstances. And so with an aptitude for maths and physics, he went to university in 1937 to study uh, physics uh, and maths, but he also supplemented with that with a course in literature. In 1940, he met his wife and married her, um, but the Soviet Union was invaded by the Germans in June 1941, the following year, and he was called up in October, and he wasn't to see his wife Natalia for another 15 years. In January 19, he, he, he initially, um, he, uh, he had a job just looking after 100 pack horses and was desperate to move sideways away from that because it was uh, not what he wanted to do. And uh, in the course of form filling, uh, an officer discovered that he had an aptitude for maths. And so he went through what he called his first mathematical rescue, and he was transferred to the artillery, which is what he'd always wanted to be. And he went off to train with the artillery for a year and then served with the Red Army, getting medals uh, until January 45, when the Red Army approached Königsberg. And in February of that year, just the next month, he was summoned to his commanding officers uh, tent or offices where there were two members of the NKVD secret police waiting for him. And after being uh, told to give up his service weapon, he had his uh, flashes torn off his uh, lapels and uh, his medal ribbons taken too. And he was taken into interrogation because he'd written to a friend criticizing Stalin's ability as a uh, strategist and also saying that he didn't believe that he was interpreting Lenin correctly. He thought rather, well, not naively, we only know afterwards now when we hear the stories of a number of people who are arrested like that, he thought that uh, it was okay to voice private opinions in a letter, but somehow the letter had reached the secret police. So he was shipped off to Moscow to the famous Lubyanka, where he uh, stayed in a cell for four to six months. And, um, and then finally was tried in July 1945 under uh, the infamous Article 58, anti-Soviet agitation, um, and he was sentenced without even appearing before a court, literally by a, a signed note by the court, to eight years in a corrective labor camp for having carried on anti-Soviet agitation among his friends 
and taken action for the formation of an anti-Soviet organization from 1940 right through to the time of his arrest in February 1945. It's absolutely crazy, but every single charge in those days was totally goopy. Um, in some respects, he was lucky because 157,000 Soviet servicemen and women were shot during the Second World War by their own side for military crimes. So he did very well just simply to escape with eight years in the camps. Um, he was transferred, first of all, just to a simple construction camp in Moscow and uh, uh, was working, building, uh, it laying parquet floors for a building which was going to be used by the secret police uh, and their families, just apartments. Um, and he said later on he had the good fortune to go back to that same building when he was famous and it had been given over to the Academy of Sciences and was delighted to find that his floor was one of the few that didn't squeak, which was one of the things he prided himself on. And having read, if you read Denisovich, you'll notice that, Den that, that Denisovich Shukov uh, keeps on coming back to his work and a pride he has in his work. Um, and, uh, and clearly there's aspects of it that are biographical. Anyway, he then underwent what he called his second mathematical rescue because during, again, the form filling, someone discovered about his mathematical abilities. And so he was transferred to a Sharashka, which were the camps set up or the institutes set up by the secret police in order to be able to conduct secret scientific research. At one point, one of the Sharashkas he was in, he was, in was uh, researching ways of analyzing telephone calls to see if you could identify the voices of the people in there. Um, and uh, he, he went through a, a number of these, but in 1948, Stalin um, uh, introduced a tougher regime for political prisoners, and they were separated from the rest and sent off to a special camp, Spetslager. Uh, you'll notice that Denisovich is in one of those. Uh, Solzhenitsyn wasn't in fact transferred until 1950, and they came in in 1948. And the regime there was tougher. You were locked in your barracks at night. You had to wear these numbers on your back and on your cap and on your front and on your knees. And just generally speaking, everything was much harsher. In fact, it was a regime which was to backfire later on uh, because when Stalin died and in the year before he died, the fact that every special camp had gathered together all the worst political prisoners actually made them a hotbed for revolt. And so there were a number of revolts which took place in 1953-54 as a result of putting them all together, particularly the Ukrainians who were particularly belligerent. Um, an interesting little historical fact there. Anyway, he got the idea while he was in his new camp, which was uh, working as a construction laborer in Kazakhstan. He got the idea there of the Denisovich book, but he kept everything very, very secret and didn't tell anyone uh, of his thoughts. When he was finally released in 1953, just a month before Stalin um, died, uh, he was sent to exile and he was sent to uh, Uzbekistan, where he worked as a school teacher teaching maths and physics in a village school. And he stayed there until eventually there was a, a relaxation. He was able to get his sentence quashed in 1956. And then he moved on to go back to Western Russia and settled in Ryazan. And then that takes us forward to the book, to 1961. He, um, he decided the time had come uh, to 
to no longer keep quiet about his writing and to see if he could get any of it published. By then, he had published little, he had written little bits of various books. He'd written, uh, he'd written most of a play, uh, and uh, and and Denisovich was finished. He he saw a friend of his who later became a very famous dissident, Lev Kopelev, who he got to know in one of the Sharashkas in Moscow and was talking to him about it. And it so happened that uh, Kopelev knew someone who was a sub-editor in, uh, in the offices of Novi Mir. Novi Mir was a really important artistic literary magazine uh, in the, that published widely. And it took longer uh, literary pieces as well. And so his friend Lev Kopelev took the, the book or took the manuscript to see uh, this friend of his, Anna Berza, uh, or Berza, I don't know how it would be pronounced in Russian, I, I divert to the German, but Anna Berza became his confidant and ally on the staff of, uh, on the staff of Novi Mir. The, the editor of Novi Mir, Tvardovsky, was already on the Central Committee, so he's a very, very important man in Soviet intellectual life already. Uh, Anna Berza realized as soon as she read it what an absolutely groundbreaking book it was. There was nothing like uh, this published at all. And uh, she she um, she gave it to a colleague and they concocted together a scheme to see how they could get it to the editor. Uh, it's important, I think, to remember the actual timing of all of this because it was November 61, 1961, when the manuscript was sent through to Anna Berza. But in October 1961, Khrushchev, who had taken over from Stalin, had spoken at the 22nd Congress and had made it very, very clear that he wanted to continue his program of de-Stalinization. Um, he had uh, he'd spoken derogatorily about Stalin already. Everyone knew of the secret speech, even if they didn't know of its text, they knew of its, its existence. Um, and that was uh, some years earlier. I think we go back to 1956 with that. But, but uh, Khrushchev was determined to change the direction and uh, was already experiencing some resistance from the Stalin loyalists within the higher uh, ranks of the party. But nonetheless, October 1961 was this crucial time when he gave this speech, and only a month later, that manuscript arrived in the Novi, Novi Mir offices. Anna Berza was very clever. She, um, she went to all of her successive superiors, one after another, who all had a right to see every new manuscript, and she scared them all with the stories of camps and, 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 uh, and what it was and, and, and how risky it was to the point where they all shifted it onto the person upstairs and said, no, no, don't, don't pass it on to them. I don't want anything to do with it until she'd been through all of the ranks and was left solely with the editor. He was due to go home for the weekend. This was now in, in December. Um, he was due to go home for the weekend, wanted to take two manuscripts with him. And so she produced uh, Denisovich on, on the one hand and another one, but she knew that Twardowski was very proud of his peasant origins. And so she said, here are two for you. Um, this is this one and this one by this writer who they were then giving as a pseudonym, uh, Ryakovsky, because that's Ryazan was where he was from. Um, this one is a man of peasant origins. And having thrown that little, um, that little inducement out, 
Twardowski took it home and uh, and read it. His normal habit was to sit and read the book in bed, oh, his, his books in bed. But the moment he started to read this, he realized that he was onto something which was so groundbreaking. He said he got up, dressed in his clothes, and sat at a table reading it. And he read it right the way through to the night until five in the morning, at which point he was absolutely stunned by what he had. And I think it's important that we see that reaction in this little book here, which today we, we find hard to see quite how perhaps it would have been so significant. He was blown away by it. He read parts to his wife uh, over breakfast and then um, determined, they then phoned up the, the rest of his staff, Anna Berza, and, and tried to find out, managed to find out who the identity of Solzhenitsyn was and then went into the offices to try and get uh, the other three copies of the manuscript, which she had retyped so they were easy to read because Solzhenitsyn had typed it on two sides because it, he, he was obviously short of paper and it was very hard to read the way he'd done it. Um, Twardowski found the offices closed and so broke into Anna Berza's desk uh, to get the four copies and then summoned four of his literary friends. They all went off to a flat and read it to each other together and got blind drunk at the same time. Um, Twardowski liked his uh, vodka and uh, he was so excited that he thought this was a good excuse. So uh, they, Solzhenitsyn arrived a week later, summoned from Riazan, and uh, they sat him down in the conference room. Uh, Twardowski told him, he said, this is an extraordinary uh, book. I think I don't have got the quote. He liked, yes, you come to us as a fully formed writer. You have no need either to instruct or to nurse you. In some ways, your book is even better than Dostoevsky's House of the Dead. I mean, Solzhenitsyn tried very hard to give the impression of not much of a reaction, but I think for any author suddenly being discovered and within a week, you get that reaction from someone so important. It must have been quite a moment in his life as well. Um, uh, Twardowski produced a contract straight away and offered to um, uh, give him the equivalent of two years salary as an advance. Again, something unheard of for a poor teacher in Riazan, but said he couldn't guarantee when it was going to get published because he realized there were so many hurdles ahead. Now, over the next year, um, he managed to get the, well, over the next few months through to the spring, he managed to get the, the manuscript to a number of very leading authors, uh, some of whom didn't want to comment on it, but a number of very important ones all said how groundbreaking it was, what an extraordinary novel it was, and gave a written endorsement. With that, he then managed to go to um, Khrushchev's private secretary, Vladimir Lebedev, um, because he realized he needed permission right at the top to be able to get the book across. And this is really, the, again, this is another part of this extraordinary story that this unknown school teacher is now having his book actually taken to the leader of the Soviet Union. Um, Lebedev saw that it was a great book. Lebedev came back with a few changes he wanted to make. Uh, he wanted to dumb down the contribution of a Baptist, uh, Khrushchev was having a bit of a crackdown on the church and um, he didn't think that would go down well and tone some of the language. Solzhenitsyn said he spent all these years writing it and he wasn't going to change it and put his foot down at the editorial meeting back in the offices of Novi Mir um, and said, if you don't like it, I'll take my manuscript back. Thank you. And of course, they 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 gave way. 
But um, he was persuaded to go back and make a few changes. And then the manuscript finally went to Lebedev, um, I think somewhere around uh, July of that year. So Khrushchev went off for his summer holidays, at lengthy summer holidays down south. And in September, he happened to be receiving the American poet Robert Frost. Uh, and Lebedev escorted him. And in the course of, of the, that, that meeting or in the conversation, Lebedev and another person started to talk about Solzhenitsyn's manuscript. Um, and Khrushchev said, what's this? Why hadn't I been given it? And, and again, this was the bait that they'd thrown out. Khrushchev said, why haven't I been given it? And, 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 and Lebedev said, well, you know, you can read it if you like. Uh, and Khrushchev said, yes, I want it, please. And Lebedev had forgotten to, to, um, to bring it. So was dispatched to go all the way back from Crimea to Moscow to fly back to get the manuscript to bring it back. And he arrived back a week later. Khrushchev was so struck by it when Lebedev started reading him parts. Khrushchev told him to stop and to go and get Mikoyan, who was one of Stalin's other old colleagues, uh, again, one of the leading figures of the inner circle who had survived um, Stalin's death and Khrushchev's succession. And together, the two of them uh, listened while Lebedev was reading extracts from it. And Khrushchev said, this is to be published. This is absolutely in the spirit of the 22nd Congress of October the previous year. Uh, and the story then just went on from there. Um, on the 22nd of... Uh, of on the 22nd of October, that was September, he gave permission. On the 22nd of October of 62, now we're one year afterwards, without any warning at all, Pravda published a poem by uh, Yevgeny Yevtushenko called The Heirs of Stalin. Now, one has to see, if you go back to Russia at that stage or go back to Russia a few years earlier, the faintest criticism would get you arrested and locked up by the police. But the heirs of Stalin was an extraordinary, I can't read it to you all because this is just meant to be an introduction to this evening, but um, it, 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 it talks about Stalin's body being in the mausoleum because it happened at the, uh, at the same time that they were moving Stalin's body from the Lenin mausoleum into the, 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 the Kremlin wall. But it was all this about all this about he's in there in his coffin, but he isn't really dead. He's listening and he's waiting his time to come back. And this was symbolic of the Stalinists who wanted to come back and take control again. And there's this line. Um, there's this line here. Um, I appear and I appealing to our government petition them to double and treble the centuries guarding this slab where he's now been buried and stop Stalin from ever rising again and with Stalin the past. I mean, absolutely astonishing. The poem, just like uh, Denisovich, had actually been circulating in inter intellectual circles. By now, Moscow was absolutely agog with the fact that Denisovich even existed and was going to be published. And they were all waiting for it. And the great day took place um, on November the 20th, 1962, when Novimir published uh, their edition was mainly by subscription. Everyone that went to bookshops sold out. They were they 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 printed 96,000 copies. Um, they had to withdraw some copies from the bookshops because uh, Kremlin, um, Khrushchev was speaking to a large meeting of uh, party bigwigs 
and told them all they needed to go off and out and buy it. And so they had to retrieve a couple of thousand copies and take them off to the Kremlin meeting rooms where these meetings were taking place so they could sell them to the delegates. Astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, forgive my enthusiasm, but I mean, this is, this is you, you understand why this is a, such a groundbreaking, um, such a groundbreaking book. Uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn was flooded with letters. Um, uh, there's one, one, uh, Anyway, all of Moscow was agog, but but but, and now we come probably to the the the, the beginning of the genu that 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 was the the peak for Solzhenitsyn. But it just so happened on the very day uh, Novi Mir was published was the day that after whatever it was six weeks, two months, or whatever, the Cuba missile crisis came to a head, and Khrushchev backed down and withdrew the freighters or withdrew the missiles which were being sighted on Cuba. And he was fatally wounded by that. It took two years before he was finally ousted. But at the same time, as he was weakened, the Stalinists who did not like this book at all um, came back and started to gradually take more and more control. In the end, in March of the following year, we're just talking about early spring, uh, uh, Khrushchev uh, at another Congress actually started to rein in on his criticism of Stalin and talked about um, what do you say? It's quite an interesting, it's an interesting quote, actually. Uh, At Stalin's funeral, many people, including myself, had tears in their eyes. These were honest tears. Although we knew of Stalin's personal shortcomings, we believed him. And so the monstrous crimes of the Stalin era were now becoming his personal shortcomings shortcomings. He commended, he commended um, Solzhenitsyn at the Congress, who he had incidentally been introduced to. Um, there's a story about that, but I think we're probably running out of time, which I would like to tell you. Uh, oh, oh, I've got to. Um, it, it's uh, absolutely intriguing. Um, Solzhenitsyn was, because it's, this is a Denisovich reflection, Solzhenitsyn was summoned to go to a meeting with some in some central committee uh, a gathering, he didn't know what it was, um, and so he decided that, that the Zek habit, the prisoner habit, don't draw attention to yourself. He dressed himself in a shabby suit, made sure the shoes he was wearing were patched, and uh, generally dressed down just to look like an unassuming peasant because he didn't want to draw attention to himself to get any in any position where anyone would think that he was uppity, that he was he was in any way successful or whatever else. It, an absolute, uh, complete picture of how Zhukov behaves, trying to keep out of the way of the guards, trying to keep a low profile. Uh, uh, and you see this, this is, this is Solzhenitsyn's character. So anyway, he goes to this meeting and um, uh, a car is sent round for him and it turns out he's there to be introduced to Khrushchev himself in all these shabby clothes. But uh, there we go. So um, Khrushchev also in the same meeting started to come down against prisoner memoirs. He said that literary houses have now been, quote, flooded with magazines about life of persons in exile, in prisons and, and in the camps since the publication of Denisovich. Take my word for it, this is a very dangerous theme that will attract flies like a carcass, enormous fat flies, all sorts of bourgeois scum from abroad will come falling all over it. And, uh, and so the crackdown 
basically began with public criticism. Uh, Khrushchev was ousted the following year in September of 1965. The KGB found the whole of Solzhenitsyn's archive, which he'd lodged for safekeeping with a friend. That was confiscated. Um, two famous uh, uh, writers, Sinaevsky and Daniel, were sentenced to five and eight years, I think, in 1965 for smuggling their manuscripts out to the West. There was a show trial in January 68 of some of their supporters. Um, in 1969, Solzhenitsyn was expelled from the Writers' Union, which actually led him to be liable for arrest, because if you weren't a member of the Writers' Union and you didn't have a job, you could be arrested for parasitism just for not having a, a, a job. And um, and so then the Warsaw Pact invasion and the crackdown on that in 1968 was really the final straw. Then it became a very difficult place for him to live. Um, in 1971, the KGB uh, allegedly tried to assassinate him uh, and uh, he was finally deported in 1974. And as we're not talking about the Gulag Archipelago, I will go no further than simply to say that he had managed to smuggle the manuscript of that. Though he, he never worked on the whole manuscript of it. He always worked on a part and left the other ones somewhere else. But he had made a friend who was an Estonian, I think an Estonian politician. And uh, he had smuggled out copies, uh, I think on microfilm with them. And they kept them right the way through until 1991. But copies had made their way to the West. And he eventually decided that, um, there was no way they were going to publish anything of his uh, anything of his after Denisovich, although he had had the possibility of it happening. Um, and uh, um, and so he gave permission for Gulag Archipelago to be published in 1974, and he was expelled a few months later. And there we go. Well, Denisovich. Thank well, thank you very much. <laughs> Fantastic. Which I really enjoyed learning about. <laughs> I didn't know about this. It may, it may sound like I'm very knowledgeable. I am now, but uh, uh, absolutely fascinating. I shall take it much more seriously now. Can I just, before we uh, open, the, open it to everybody else, can I ask, you kept on saying when the first people read it, it was, they thought, oh my God, this is groundbreaking. In what sense did they think it was groundbreaking? Groundbreaking for a number of reasons. Um, Groundbreaking because nobody had written like this about the camps. Uh, and therefore, it was wholly revelatory. People knew the stories, but the idea that one would be written uh, for a start was, was, was groundbreaking. But they loved the style. Um, Solzhenitsyn had made a habit since his time in the Sharashka um, when he actually picked up a, some kind of... Um, Theosaurus dictionary of the Russian language. He'd made his, I'm not a Russian speaker, but his, the way he uses language apparently is absolutely remarkable. And so the language appealed. Uh, what also appealed in, in Khrushchev's terms and what he liked about it was here was a good proletarian who took pride in his work and the book significantly did not spend its time getting really angry and rubbishing Stalin. So that opened the way for it to be published. I think it was the style, the conciseness of it. Solzhenitsyn got letters from all over the place of people who said, I recognize myself in that. I, I served with that one, or I served with that one. He even got some of his former um, inmates actually recognizing who he was writing about 
from the camp in Kazakhstan because he recognized they, they recognized um, that again. Um, so it's all those things combined, really. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Museum of Communist Terror. You can follow our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and SoundCloud. Please also see our videos, briefs, and more on our website, www.museumofcommunistterror.com. If you subscribe to the website, you'll receive occasional updates on our activities, events, and publications.